Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. What makes a New Orleans chef an icon? In a town known for its celebrity chefs and venerable institutions, it takes more than innate talent and an odd TV appearance. To reach the status of icon, a chef's life and achievements must make an impact on the world and capture people's attentions. New Orleans chefs Susan Spicer and Frank Brightston are both culinary icons. They're also back-to-back -back recipients of the coveted Ella Brennan Lifetime Achievement and Hospitality Award, presented each year by the New Orleans Wine and Food Experience. Frank was recognized in 2022. Susan is this year's honoree. On this week's show, we sit down with both celebrated chefs, who each have careers that span over 40 years, to learn about their successes and the challenges they overcame to become the legends they are today. How does a chef become an icon? We learn from two of the best on this week's Louisiana Eats. Since her cooking career began in 1979, Susan Spicer has become one of New Orleans' most celebrated and popular culinary figures. The unflappable chef co-founded her flagship French Quarter restaurant, Bayona, in 1990, earning the James Beard Award three years later. Susan's written an award-winning cookbook, appeared on Top Chef, and even inspired a character and made an appearance as herself on the HBO series Treme. In addition to Bayona, she's the owner of Rosedale in Mid-City and Mondo, her former Lakeview restaurant that now operates out of Louis Armstrong International Airport. Susan, what a treat it is to sit down with you in the Louisiana Eats studio and talk about your amazing journey as a chef. You know, you're one of my great heroes because you were blazing the trail for women in the kitchen just at about the same time I was beginning to entertain a life in food myself. How right. did this all get started? Well... You know, as I've said before, I, I did a lot of things badly until <laughs> I tried a lot of, you know, looking for something. And I happened into cooking through a girlfriend of mine, and it satisfied all my cravings, really, you know, which was for something creative, something physical, something uh, social. It just hit a lot of things. And, you know, 
I seemed to have an aptitude for it. It came together like 10 years after I got out of high school. So, you know, a little bit. Come from a family of late bloomers. And, uh, you know, it's taken us a while to find what we do. But it just, it, it was very natural. The food was in your blood, though, I think, because your mother She's is a great cook. quite a great cook. Yeah. And one of the things I think you're known for is your international flair with food. Don't you think that that had something to do with how you grew oh, up? Oh, it had a lot to do with that, yeah. My mom was Danish. She grew up in South America. We lived in the Netherlands where she learned Indonesian cooking. And, yeah, so dining was always an adventure in our family. And I'm one of seven kids, and we all love food. We all, you know, thanks to my mom. She did it. I say effortlessly. I mean, she cooked for nine people every day. She gave a lot of dinner parties. And she never seemed to approach it as if it were drudgery. So that helps. So you're uh, 26 years old. You figured out the food thing. How does the journey begin? Well, my first job was with Pamela Calhoun at Girton's, that lunch restaurant in the um, ICB Bank building at 300 St. Charles. I think it was 300 or 333 St. Charles, from which we both got fired. But um, (laughs) then I started with Danielle Bonneau at the Louis XVI. And that was in the Marie Antoinette Hotel down in the French Quarter on Toulouse Street. And it was really, I think, the first true French restaurant that wasn't French Creole, I, I would think. I imagine that the time that you spent with Danielle Bonneau was sort of, in some ways, like a traditional European apprenticeship. It was. I had to bug him a lot, though. You know, he wanted to ignore me for a while, but I asked a lot of questions and I would always go up and check out all the books. And I was like, can you use tarragon and mushrooms in the same, you know, stuff like that? And he was like, yeah. And then he would start taking me on, like, when he would be doing cooking classes or demonstrations or stuff. And then, you know, he would do a couple of things, and then he would go, and now Suzanne is going to show you how to make the creme brulee. And I would be going like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. And he would go, shut up and do it, you know. So that was kind of his (laughs) gentle you know, way of uh, guiding me uh, was shut up and do it. And then Danielle, well, he went on to become food and beverage manager for Mark Smith in the small hotel, local hotel company. Um, and they bought the St. Charles Hotel. And that's when we opened uh, Savoir Faire, which was in 1982. And they gave me my first chef position, which I thought they were nuts, but they oh, said, I, you know. Do you believe that you first began to get most of your major notice early at Savoir Faire, or did it really start to come together for you? Well, I think the locals started coming to Savoir Faire. And I I really believe that, you know, the out-of-towners always want to know where the locals eat. That's, yeah, I would say that's where I started getting, you know, attention from outside of New Orleans. Savoir Faire was, was mostly a local restaurant. It was a wonderful place. It was restaurant. a nice old place. Yeah, I, I, I liked it. It was just so cool because it was like anything goes. I remember doing brains and eggs, you know, at, at brunch at Savoir Faire, you know, Moroccan, sort of like a shakshuka kind of thing, but with brains. <laughs> Danielle would let me do anything I wanted. So it was really fun. It was a, That was a real voyage of discovery, my first chef position and, you know, being, as I say, Charles in charge. It was, uh, you know, it was tough. 
Well, you know, with that always comes some startling mistakes. What's something that has stuck with you that you're like, oh, my goodness? Um, you know, it wasn't so much a colossal mistake. It was more just how terrified I was to be the one that people came to, that I was supposed to have all the answers. And I just, you know, just didn't feel like I was that person. <laughs> you know, it, it was a – it was – it was a proving a development. ground. Yes, it was. It was a proving ground. And it just, it was so hard to finally get to the point where I thought, oh, you know, this is why I'm the chef, because I have standards and I'm willing to stick to them. And, you know, some of these people, they don't feel that same way. You know, Danielle would teach me, you know, that it had to be right. And I realized that it wasn't so much just like my, you know, fabulous creativity or whatever. It was just, you know, having having standards and making sure that things were right and being willing to stand your ground. It, it took a while. It was like a metamorphosis, I guess, is the word I was searching for. And then you were at the Maison de Ville. Yeah. That's right. And spent a little time working in restaurants in the French Quarter. How do you end up with your own restaurant in the French Quarter? That happened because the Maison de Ville was just so tiny, and it really people would get really aggravated. I guess because it was kind of a hot ticket, you know. At a certain point, in '89, I think is when I got the Food and Wine Best New Chef thing, which was still kind of a new. I think it was only the second year that they awarded it. That was the start of the whole, you know, celebrity chef, whatever <laughs> you know you want to call. It. What it, it yeah. kind of was, you know, and it came it with a lot of perks. And it came with a lot of people wanting to go there because they knew your name, not because, you know, for whatever reason. And then people started saying, oh, you know, let's open a restaurant together. I want to put you in a bigger place. I want to do this and that. And, and then, you know, I met Regina Kieber. And we looked around for um, some locations to maybe expand, you know, do something bigger. You know, it just kind of came about pretty quickly. And when did you open? That was uh, end of March 1990. And then in no time short, you get the James Beard Award. Three years. Three years, yeah. Yeah, which I know, believe me, I I was very, very proud of that. It's wonderful to be recognized by your peers. It's kind of, you know, the Beard Award is what it is. Susan, when you think back and look around, who are the women in the other kitchens? Who else? Because, you know, I don't really see you getting peers until mm, later. Well, Agnès Bellet was, you know, working. She wasn't a chef yet, but she was, you know, working at the St. Louis. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. You know, there, there was, wasn't anybody, I can't Susan. remember. I just can't no, remember. No, I'm no, sure no, there was. no. Well, you know, and Joanne had opened up her line the same when we, you know, right around the time that we opened, um, you know, so maybe they weren't like chefs, but, you know, there were women doing things. You forged the way, you win the James Beard Award, and Bayona just becomes one of the things that New Orleans is really proud of. Well, thank you. From those very early days, it was the place to go. And now the challenge is, you know, it's a little bit ironic 
because when you have been around for a long time, when you're trying to hire staff and stuff, it's kind of like, oh, we don't want to go work for that old place, you know. So you have to try to stay relevant without being trendy. I personally feel that that's one of the secrets to Susan Spicer's food is that you have it exactly laid out, exactly as it should be. And if you follow the directions and and do what the boss tells you, everything's going to be, it's going to have a continuity. It's going to, because consistency is everything, isn't it? Well, I think it's important, but isn't there an expression that says consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds or something? So, you know, but yes, I think it's important to be consistent. And we do have signature items that I'm very proud of and that I will continue to do. But I still like to hear my chefs, you know, new ideas. And even if I go like, "Mm, you know, I wouldn't make that myself, but let's check it out and see. Uh, Oh, all right. Oh, you know, that's really, that's delicious. It's good. I wouldn't have thought of it. You know, so I try to keep an open mind and we do try to, you know, evolve. I don't want to just rest on laurels. Coming up next, our conversation with Chef Susan Spicer continues. But first... What organization is behind the Ella Brennan Lifetime Achievement in Hospitality Award? We'll explore that topic when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness, always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets, tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, now celebrating 100 years of New Orleans tradition. Celebrate with Camellia by sharing your family's favorite bean stories. Email me at poppy at poppytooker.com to share in the celebration. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What organization is behind the Ella Brennan Lifetime Achievement in Hospitality Award? The annual award is given by the local nonprofit, the New Orleans Wine and Food Experience. This year, 
Nalfi, as it's often called, turns 31 years old. This year's experience is scheduled for June 7th through 11th. Over the past three decades, Nalfi has raised and distributed over $1.5 million, funds that have gone to food banks and culinary schools, making a real difference in our hospitality community. This year's beneficiaries include Delgado's Community College Culinary Program and the Edible Schoolyard. The very first Lifetime Achievement Award was given in 2010 and went to the queen of New Orleans hospitality, Ella Brennan. From then on, the award was named for Ella. Past recipients include Paul Prudhomme, Leah Chase, Ralph Brennan, and Emeril Lagasse. I was lucky enough to be in the audience for this year's awards, and Susan Spicer fans... Beware. When Susan's husband, Chip Martinson, got up to speak at the gala, he warned everyone in attendance that if he had his way, Susan would never cook for any of us again. But as much as Chip would like to see Susan cut back on her time in the kitchen and spend more of it with him, most days, you'll still find Chef Susan mentoring her young staff at Rosedale, teaching them her classic dishes like turtle soup and the duck pastrami sandwich, because that kitchen is Susan's happy place. Goodness knows, a lot of happiness originates there. I'm Poppy Tooker. And Susan Spicer's restaurant, Rosedale, serves up some good Louisiana eats. And now our conversation continues with New Orleans chef, and culinary icon, Susan Spicer. After a decade of successfully operating her French Quarter restaurant, Bayona, in 2000, Susan focused her energies on a new venture in the Central Business District. Along with two partners, Susan opened a small bistro called Herb Saint, stewarding it through its early years. Running the kitchen was an up-and-coming young chef named Donald Link. Yeah, so Donald had worked for me before, and then he moved back to town, and I was kind of casting around for something else to do in the warehouse district because it was really starting to percolate down there, and I liked it. You know, I, I had great confidence in Donald as a chef and a partner, and, and so it was really a stepping stone for him, and it just got to a point where... It was kind of silly. I was at Bayona, and I would come over to Herb Saint, and, you know, Donald would have been there all day, like, working his butt off, and, and then people would come to me and go, like, oh, Susan, this was so great. Thank you. And it just started to feel <laughs> uncomfortable to me because he was really the managing partner and the working chef, and I, you know, so that was good. It became his restaurant. And I still was a partner there until um, after Katrina. And then at what point does Mondo come along? 2000? No, 2010. <laughs> Whoa. 
seems like it was earlier than that, but no, June of, of 2010. Yeah, because Mondo really became part of the rebuilding right. of the lakefront. Of, yeah, but of, when you think, you know, that was already five years after Katrina. You, you know? have to think how horrible it was yeah. to put it all in context. Oh, I, believe me, I remember. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> that's your neighborhood. Yeah, that was you, my my house. Yeah, yeah, you had plenty of that. And that's, you know, you've got this incredible career and somehow or another, you didn't get married for a really long, long time. Nope. Tell me how you avoided marriage and then how marriage found you. Well, I always felt like I'd be sort of the career gal, you know, which I was. And, you know, I mean, it was important for me to have something I could do and that I was good at. I mean, I think it was just kind of... I'm sure it was my dad's influence. My mom was just a lover of life and wanted us all to be happy. My father always wanted us to have a career, wanted us to, you know, do something and support ourselves and be independent. So I was pulled in both ways and and happily. I was very happy in my career choice. And so it was never anything like I didn't want to get married, whatever. I just, you know, I never met the right person. And then I met the right person. That was the most amazing thing. You married Chip, and Chip came complete with kids even. Yes. I always say, you know, I got a husband, two kids, and a dog all in one day. So, (laughs) you know, it was a big change. It was a big change, and it happened at a wonderful time where I had, you know, was able to devote myself to my career and build that and then still end up with a family. Well, I love your husband, too. I just think he's the greatest guy. He had a background in culinary, too. Yes, he did. Wasn't he cooking when you met him? Yeah, he was at GW Fins. He opened GW Fins with Tenny. And that, you know, that all worked out really well because when we got married and he had his two children, he said, you know, we both said, well, one of us should get out of the restaurant business, you know, so that we can be there for the kids. And I was like, well, you know what? I don't know how to do anything else. And he said, well, I'd like to try my hand at making furniture. I'm like, okay, sounds good. Go for it. Now, you know, they're grown and, you know, moved out of the house. We're empty nesters. And I should be slowing down. And that's not going to happen. No, no. But, you know, I want, I love my husband. I want to of course. spend more time with him. I do. You know, he's a hard worker, too. But, of course, opening a third restaurant is not an exit strategy. No, Susan, it's not. No, it's which not. Which is, you know, so you, <laughs> if Rosedale comes along, that's And I thought you'd sworn off ever opening another restaurant. How the heck did that happen? I fell in love with the building. That's all it was. And then Chip really liked it. Yes, my husband would say, I'm addicted. I'm a workaholic. <laughs> Has there ever been a time when you thought, maybe I'm just going to quit? Like we just we just heard you talk about the exit strategy, but you know there have been some pretty big bumps. I mean, there was the bump of Katrina. Yeah, that then was, there was a pretty you know, big and bump. even the the, the BP. oil spill that was horrific. That yeah. was really horrific. Um, but you know, yeah, do I want to just quit? Well, there nah. never was a time. No, no never. You're just not like I'm just going to quit. You know, I mean, you know, I would say other challenges of like staffing, you know, and I know that every generation has always said, you know, and we've been saying it for a long time, oh, these kids today and all that, you know, have no work ethic. But, you know, it's hard now even to get people to show up for an interview or if they show up for the interview and they say they'll come in for a 
trail? You know, will they show up? It, you know, they're looking for better work environment, which is good, but it's important for people to participate and give back <laughs> too. You got to work for things, I think. For me, my deal was just focus on the food and kind of everything else sort of fell away. I had I worked with guys that didn't want women in the kitchen and were rude or badgered me or whatever, but I just focused on what I was doing. I thought about the food. I didn't worry so much about what the environment was. You know, you just came in and did the work, and the work was very satisfying, and that's where I got my fulfillment from. You know, it was from doing a good job. And I just never paid that much attention to the rest of it, I guess. I don't, but I don't know if that's exceptional or, you know, what? It's Well, look at the success that it has brought you. And I was going to ask you if you had any words of advice for um, people entertaining the thought of a life in the kitchen. Well, I think we are moving towards a point where you have to sacrifice less. I think that's happening. As much as it's a habit with me, I wish I didn't work as much as I do. I wish I could kind of make myself not do it. I'm striving towards that. I promise, Chip. Um, So I think there is kind of a cultural movement to where, you know, it's not going to be the all-absorbing, life-sucking career thing. <laughs> but it is rewarding and there's nothing like it. It's and there's great. nothing like you know, the camaraderie and, I, no, and the fellowship. It's the great and camaraderie and also, you know, your customers that become friends and family so and the kooky people that work in restaurants are always amusing from the front to the back to the dishwashers and, you know, it's a kind of a nutty bunch. That's where I have gotten a lot of my joy. Chef and New Orleans icon, Susan Spicer. I'm Frank Brightson from Brightson's Restaurant in Uptown New Orleans. When it comes to authentic Creole food, Chef Frank Brightson's cooking stands in a class of its own. Here in his hometown of New Orleans, there are few chefs held in higher esteem. From 1978 through the early 80s, Frank earned his culinary stripes in the kitchens of Commander's Palace and K. Paul's working under the watchful eye of Paul Prudhomme. Since opening Brightston's restaurant in 1986, Frank has built on his mentor's legacy, winning over diners with his command of Creole dishes, all presented without a hint of pretension. Over the last four decades, both Frank and his namesake restaurant have racked up countless accolades. 
Most recently, Frank was honored with the 2022 Ella Brennan Lifetime Achievement in Hospitality Award. We asked the legendary chef to join us in the studio to look back at his 50-year career in hospitality and learn what led to his life in food. Well, I was born on Napoleon Avenue at Southern Baptist, so let's start there, and uh, raised in River Ridge, uh, what is now River Ridge. And my earliest restaurant memory is sitting in my high chair and my mom peeling me boiled crabs at Charlie Seafood on Jefferson Highway. And I remember going out to eat regularly. Um, we loved Sclafani's. That was our Sunday supper uh, where I'd get a Roy Rogers and spaghetti and meatballs and garlic bread. You know, Mom was a great cook. Uh, interestingly, she was from Alabama and came to New Orleans to go to nursing school and met my father after the war. He's, you know, New Orleans boy through and through. So she learned how to make red beans and rice and gumbo and oyster dressing and um, <laughs> they were all just so good, you know, and those flavors and memories, they're, they're emotional memories. And I think that's what signifies Louisiana cooking is that emotional attachment to certain dishes. Frank's first foray into the restaurant world came in 1973. As a freshman studying fine arts at LSU in Baton Rouge, he worked at a sandwich shop to help pay the bills. Next stop was a pasta place, where he made a home for himself in the back of the house. And when I moved back to New Orleans, I realized that I liked being in the kitchen. And uh, I had a job as a prep cook, and then I, I quit that one. And uh, the apartment I was living in got sold, so they evicted me. Um, my car broke down, so I made that fateful call to mom, can I come home? <laughs> and I was 24 years old. So I went back home to kind of recover and regroup. And uh, one day I picked up the newspaper and there was a classified ad, help wanted, Commander's Palace, now hiring Creole chefs or people willing to learn Creole cuisine. And that was me. I wanted to learn. I wanted to step up to fine dining and really learn this trade. And, um, so I had mom drive me down to my interview, <laughs> a little awkward, um, and she waited outside while I went in. This was the fall of 1978, just three years after the first non-European chef was chosen to run the kitchen at Commander's. Paul Perdome was the executive chef there. Um, I knew that because I remember seeing it on the front page of the Times-Picayune when Ellen Dick Brennan hired him. That was a bold move uh, to hire a Cajun boy as executive chef of a prominent restaurant. When you went for that very first interview, how did it feel when you hit the door that very first time? Do you remember? Oh, I do. I had knots in my stomach. Um, you know, I had food service experience, but not, nothing like Commander's. To me, Commander's Palace was the cathedral of cuisine in New Orleans. And I knew it was a huge step up, but I really did feel ready. But, I, you know, I, I was awkward, I'm sure. Um, Paul looked at my resume, and Chef Paul Miller, the sous chef, looked at it together, and Paul said to Paul Miller, um, he doesn't have any, you know, 
fine dining restaurant experience, but he's got basics, and I think he has potential. He said, Frank, I'm going to give you a chance, uh, and you have a choice. Uh, we'll, we'll hire you as a broiler chef and put you on the front line and pay you good money and expect a lot out of you. Or you can start in the pantry making very little money, but you can expect a lot out of me. And that's what I chose, of course. And uh, that was the beginning. For the next six months, Frank had the opportunity to work every station in the house at Commander's, gaining an on-the-job culinary education along the way. I started in the pantry doing desserts and salads and cold appetizers. And, you know, I got trained by Steve and Gamble. And then after two days, Steve left me on my own. It wasn't until months later that I found out there was a two-person station. (laughs) (laughs) Same thing when I went on saute. One Sunday morning, uh, you know, Commander's Jazz Brunch, there was a schedule, new schedule put up, and two saute chefs didn't show up for work. So the other chef, Jay Blair, kept saying, Frank, you know how to make an omelet? I said, nope. Every 10 minutes, Frank, you know how to make an omelet? Nope. (laughs) Frank, you run omelets. So he put me on saute station on a Sunday brunch, and that's where I learned how to shake a skillet. And as is typical in the restaurant business, you know, you don't have a a teacher by your side all the time. They would come over and show me how to pan fry trout for the trout pecan. They'd come over and show me how to do an omelet. And not all the omelets made it to the dining room. Let's Let's be honest about that, but because Mr. Dick checked every plate uh, that came out of that kitchen, every single shift. Um, but I learned how to saute, and once I got there, they left me there uh, on my own, and uh, it wasn't until a little later that I found out that was a two-person station as well, two backline saute chefs, so I must have been doing okay. <laughs> In 1979, while still executive chef at Commander's, Paul Prudhomme and his wife Kay opened their own restaurant on Charter Street in New Orleans French Quarter, the soon-to-be-famous Kay Pauls. Frank had just gotten his feet wet at Commander's when Prudhomme called him over one morning to discuss a proposition. Another fateful Sunday morning. The chefs were late coming in, so I was frantically setting up the front line. I was carrying a big stack of plates, and chef was across the way in his chair and watching me, and he said, Frank, come over here a minute. I came over there with a stack of plates. He said, how do you feel about sauces? And I said, "Um, I really like them. (laughs) He said, no, 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 let me rephrase that. How would you like to come work for me at K. Paul's and learn the nuances of sauce making? And I never heard of K. Paul's Poppy. This was 79. How long had the restaurant been open? It had been open for about eight months for lunch only. Okay. And he and Kay wanted to uh, open for dinner. So he brought me over as the night chef. Ah. And, um, you know, at that time, Paul was doing both jobs. He and He was so in love with Kay and she with him. And this was their baby, their project. So they wanted to expand in the dinner service, and he brought me over there, and I just said, yes, chef, you know, whatever. 
wanted me to do, I did. So that was it. And um, six years at K. Paul's. And uh, I owe everything to K. and Paul. Everything. Um, even, even my uh, marriage. One of the waitresses at K. Paul's was Sandy Hansen, who was friends with Kay and there from the start. The eldest of a trio of sisters, wherever Sandy went, her siblings were never far behind. One of them, Rhonda, would eventually come to work at K. Paul's. The other was Marna, who was a court reporter living in San Francisco. Frank had yet to meet Marna when the sisters came together one Christmas and greeted Frank at his second-floor French Quarter apartment. And they all pulled up in a car, the girls, the three sisters as they're known. Uh-huh. And uh, we were going somewhere. So I came out in the balcony, and Marna and I, our eyes met. And at that moment, we knew that was it. And she went back to San Francisco, packed up, and moved to New Orleans. Um, so that's how it all happened, and Marna and I have been married 37 years. During the first half of the 1980s, as K. Paul's worldwide reputation grew, so did Frank's role in the kitchen. Coming on board as the first night chef, he worked his way up the ranks to become executive chef there. Then, in 1986, after seven years working under the guidance of Paul Prudhomme, the master told Frank it was time to go. Yeah, he told me. Uh, he pulled me out of the kitchen one evening, and he and Kay were at his table in the back of the dining room. Frank, sit down. Uh, and they started talking, and uh, he said, I remember when I first interviewed you at Commander's, uh, I had asked you what you want out of life. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? And you said you thought you might want to have your own little place one day, and I, I did. And um, he said, we think you're ready. Um, Kay was sitting there smiling, and uh, Paul said, you know, we remember the time that you were cooking alone for dinner and you burned your hand real bad, and you instead of walking out, you kept cooking with one hand and kept the other hand in the sink with ice milk in it. Um, so the restaurant didn't have to close. Uh, we remember when we went to New York for the Today Show and you were in charge and it snowed that day and the mayor wanted everybody to shut down, but you stayed open and you set a record, 250 covers. <laughs> we remember that and we want to pay you back. We want to, we want to help you open a restaurant. And so they did. And, uh, they set me up with a real estate agent, attorney, CPA, and um, took about probably three months to find 723 Dante Street. And when I opened that front door, I knew that was it. Uh, I knew immediately. The location Frank found was a tiny little cottage in the river bend with three dining rooms and little to no foot traffic. It felt like New Orleans to me, you know, like walking to someone's home. And I had eaten at Dante by the River, which was the existing restaurant there. And I knew the ambiance a little bit. But it was also the size that I wanted. You know, 55, 60 seats. Uh, that's what I was used to at K. Paul's, and I knew I could manage that. From the moment Brightston's restaurant opened in 1986, right up until today, 
Frank has offered a menu that builds on the culinary education he received from his mentor, Paul Prudhomme. To me, the beauty of, he's a Cajun, uh, the beauty of Cajun cooking is, is that it's not about expensive exotic ingredients. It's about very humble ingredients and what can you do to build flavor. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, Poppy, the way perception has changed over 36 years. You know, in the beginning, like our first big review from Gene Borg in the Times-Picayune, which was a lovely, glowing five-bean review, and he used the words uh, reinventing Creole cuisine. Now, that was very flattering, um, and, and, and I was, I think, perceived as sort of the hot new kid on the block uh, to take Creole cuisine forward, which is a mantle I will gladly carry. But I, it kind of scared me a little bit, you know, because I'm just cooking what I like. <laughs> you know, people would ask me when we op- were getting ready to open the restaurant, Frank, what kind of restaurant is it going to be? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't have a PR team or advertising or anything like that. It's just me, a one-man gang. So my answer was I just want to open a good New Orleans restaurant. Now, Poppy, you know what I mean by that. I know what I mean by that. I just wanted to get in there and start cooking. So 36 years later, uh, the new kid on the block is now viewed as the keeper of the tradition. And I like that mantle even more. Coming up next, Our conversation with Frank Brightston continues as we talk about his passion for teaching the power of food to new generations of chefs. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans' French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Winter on the North Shore brings king cake flavored must-haves and Mardi Gras festivities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com.
If you're just joining us, we've been speaking with celebrated New Orleans chef Frank Brightston. After seven years apprenticing under Paul Prudhomme, Frank opened Brightston's restaurant in 1986 to critical acclaim, both locally and nationally. Following Katrina, Frank began to see that Creole and Cajun cuisine was in danger of disappearing in Louisiana. Motivated by the role mentorship played in his own life, Frank has been training new generations of chefs in the culinary high school program at the New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts, known as NOCA, and at Nichols State University in Thibodeau, Louisiana. You sought out the job at Nichols State. They didn't come for you. That's right. Uh, I called my good friend Randy Sheremy, and I said, Randy, um, I want to come teach. Uh, Do you have a spot for me? He said, oh, yeah, Frank, man, we need somebody to teach classic French. We need somebody to do stocks. I said, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I'm not looking for a job. I want to teach my stuff, the stuff I learned from Chef Paul. Uh, So they, uh, with the late Alton Duty, who was dean at the school at the time, um, we had a meeting up there, and Alton said, just make this happen. Um, And they did. So they carved out a niche for me called uh, Contemporary Creole Acadian Cuisine. Uh And I'm still teaching today. I do it in the fall. It's one night a week. uh, And I love it because it keeps this cuisine going, um, and it allows me to meet such wonderful, bright, young people um, that want to uh, learn about our industry and our culture. You have also decided to extend your reach to high school students. Let's talk about NOCA. Yeah. Sally Perry, who is the director of the NOCA Institute, knocked on my door one day and asked me if I wanted to be the uh, chef in residence at NOCA. And I secretly said, yes, (laughs) because I I had heard about this project and uh, I was dead set that I was the man for the job. And so that also has been unbelievably rewarding. I view NOCA as, I call it a sandbox. Put them in there, whatever discipline they want, and let them learn and get exposed to all this beauty in the world and let them become who they want to be. And it's, it's lovely to watch. Are there any other things about mentoring that come to mind as moments that have been particularly fulfilling to you? Well, I, honestly, I see it every day. Um, my kitchen is something I call my happy place. Um, and my favorite activity, Poppy, is just to be in the kitchen, not working, just standing, watching, watching my staff do their work, um, and teaching them, you know, bringing up the young ones, uh, that need experience. I have a 16-year-old working part-time right now. He just turned 16 this week. (laughs) And just teaching them things, you know, how to plate a dessert, how to fry, how to sharpen a knife. It's, you know, it's the most gratifying thing in the world. And it's my mission in life at this point in my life and career is to share and do for them what Chef Paul Perdome did for me. 
chef Frank Brightston of Brightston's Restaurant and keeper of the New Orleans food tradition. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 